Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard to the premiere episode of Dropkicks and Attractions Podcast, the DNA Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Xander Invictus, joined by my other host and good close personal friend, Big Bach. How we doing? Okay, so this is a uh, interesting, different concept of a podcast. So the basis is, as you can tell by the DNA logo that you're looking at right now and the actual DNA name, this is a combination podcast. As most people do realize how pro wrestling and pop culture are intertwined like a DNA strand. They are each one half of a double helix. So that is what we're looking at right here. We are going to do a weekly podcast. However, all the information will be bi-weekly. What I mean by that is... We are starting with uh, wrestling. We're going to start with the week of January 11th, 1993, which is the debut of Monday Night Raw, which we know as a big uh, pop culture staple, even today. And every other week, we will be talking about movies, TV shows, music, something that happened within that same year. So this will be either your favorite weekly podcast or your favorite bi-weekly podcast. So, myself, Xander Invictus, I've been watching wrestling for well over 30 years. Ever since I was a small child. I do remember watching it pre-raw by several years. And I also trained for a couple years at House of Glory, which just had their event. Matter of fact, at, the, at this recording, they just had their latest event yesterday. So, and, uh, Bach, how about your experience with uh, wrestling? I'm coming to wrestling as a fairly new fan. My first pay-per-view was Battleground in 2014, and the first thing I really remember as a wrestling as a whole is 15 German suplexes to John Cena at SummerSlam 2014. Okay, so you and I are relatively the same age, but uh, our experiences are different. Very much so, and I'm interested to see what my perspective can bring to the classic stuff. Absolutely. And when it comes to pop culture stuff, we are a little bit of what I like to call BOT squared. Bit of this, bit of that, because there are things that we, um, where one of us may have less experience in pop culture, the other one can pick right back up. I'm big into movies, comic books, horror movies, that sort of thing. And, but you're more a much more bigger anime fan. Oh, yes. Anime, manga, lots of Japanese music, too, is something I'm really into. So that's going to be a nice way to get um, different perspectives on things uh, either of us may have either seen, not seen, that sort of thing. I'm looking forward to the journey. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and hop into that journey with uh, Monday Night Raw from January 11th, 1993. It was from the... Manhattan Center in downtown New York City. It was only a couple blocks from the famed Madison Square Garden. I actually have been here more than once. What kind of a neighborhood is that? Uh, it's right in the middle of Manhattan. So you're Madison Square Garden. You're talking blocks away from Times Square. So this is a very nice part of Manhattan. Matter of fact, I used to go to a plan of fitness right around the corner from the opposite end of Madison Square Garden. So, uh, the Manhattan Center, it is a concert venue. Uh, most people, especially if you're a Ring of Honor fan, which is when I used to go to this a lot, was they would use the Hammerstein Ballroom 
which was the larger ballroom on the ground floor. Matter of fact, GCW just had one of their more recent shows beginning of the year there with a sold-out crowd. Uh, but this is not the Hammerstein ballroom. This is another ballroom, and it is actually a few floors up. And it's a smaller one. Even funnier, the one time I did go to see this, it was the one time Ring of Honor did not do the uh, Hammerstein Ballroom because while we were there for the show, the exact same time was a Demi Lovato concert, ironically. So they were there doing a concert, So which is why we didn't have the larger ballroom, which was funny watching two separate lines for two separate shows, two radically different groups of people. The dichotomy was probably pretty interesting. Oh, it was, it was, you get, you get all these guys ready to watch wrestling. And then the other line was small children and their parents. Lines couldn't have been more different. But anyways, the smaller ballroom, not only was it a very narrow staircase, the elevator they used, not very big. You would only be able to fit a few people. And if you watch the extras of the Monday Night Raw 10th anniversary DVD set, they interviewed uh, former referee Mike Kyoto, and he said they used to have to take the ring and all that sort of things up this very small elevator one piece at a time because it was not it was not a freight elevator size. This was even small for elevator standards. I would have expected them to take the stairs. Was there none available? It was not. It was not for anybody that's put together a ring knows that. Um. One, they're heavy. The pieces are heavy. I've had to do this several times. And two, it's not like... It was like the Friends episode. You couldn't pivot around the corners with the way the stairwell was made with these long, like, metal beams and wood planks. Okay, I gotcha. So they had to do uh, one piece at a time, which... There's a lot of pieces to a wrestling ring, so that was... I can just imagine that was a pain in the ass. And they would have to do this for every taping while they were at Hammerstein. I take it there were there a lot? Uh, at least at the very beginning of Raw, they did the first several first several months. They were at least at the Manhattan Center. They would occasionally do shows elsewhere, but this was kind of like their hub for the very beginning of Monday Night Raw. Okay, I gotcha. So why don't you go ahead and uh, take over and uh, introduce us to the show there, Buck. Alrighty, the show starts outside with Sean Mooney reporting. He had he accosts Bobby Heenan trying to enter, who's been replaced by Rob Bartlett as one of the hosts of the night. Yeah, absolutely. Like Bobby Heenan, um, one of my all-time favorite managers, and while I was in wrestling training, somebody I used to watch. Very funny. And this was going to be a recurring segment we saw throughout the show, where um, Bobby Heenan would try to come in, sneak in, because the show was sold out. It was so sold out that even Bobby Heenan, who was a member of the commentary team, couldn't even get in. And he would try different. You know, we'll discuss it throughout the show, but we'll have different disguises. He'll have uh, different disguises. I believe there was mention that Rob Bartlett at the time was a New York radio personality. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. He might have been my least favorite of all time commentators. Because I get what uh, WWF at the time, WWE now, was trying to do. They're trying to uh, push off Raw as more of a live, edgy, anything can happen. This is uncut, uncensored. So they brought in a guy, Rob Bartlett, who 
was considered somewhat of a shock jock at the time who had done some work with late radio host Don Imus. Rob Bartlett could give his shit about being there, honestly. Because you could tell he uh, was not there. He was just there for the paycheck. He didn't, you can tell he didn't care who the wrestlers were. He was always making jokes for no reason. He was messing up the names probably on purpose. It just, he was, it was awful. Yeah, I could tell that from watching this episode. He was trying to force it. Yeah, and fortunately he was gone within the, the first few months of the show, so. Alrighty, so after the Bobby Heenan segment, we go inside to Vince McMahon, known as the CEO CEO now, and Randy Savage, along with Ron Bartlett. Yeah, but at the time, he was just he was just a commentator. Not many people really knew at that moment. Hmm. Yeah, so our three commentators give us a quick overview of the show, and we get right into it with the first match of Coco Beware versus Yokozuna. Yeah, and so Yokozuna was still relatively new. I believe he's in his first year. He was still on his undefeated streak as a monster. Uh, Yokozuna was also not Japanese. He was he's a part of the famous Noye wrestling family, where like Roman Reigns, the Usos, uh, the Rock. The Rock is half black, half Samoan. His Samoan half is from this. Uh, basically, started by former tag team champions and Hall of Famers, the Wild Samoans. So. Basically, if you're part of this wrestling family, you're they still they still have to this day have members of that family wrestling all over the world. Yeah. No. Um. Yes. Uh, the the match the match itself is not particularly not nothing really important happens. It's it's a squash match. Sure, but hold on. Let's let's let, let's go back to Coco Beware first. Okay. Uh, Coco Beware uh, was basically at the twilight of his career. I uh, was a member of the high-energy tag team with Owen Hart at the time. And you may not look like he may not have had this, the look for it, but this man was incredibly agile. I remember when we were doing research for this, um, he was able to do a missile drop kick off the top rope and land on his feet. That's really impressive. I've never seen that before. And on top of that, uh, which we'll get to him here in a little bit later in the episode. He was in a match with a early match with Rick Steiner. This was before either one of them were in WWE. You know, Rick Steiner was a uh, went for a power slam. Not only did Cookie Beware roll through the power slam, he was able to lock in a small package out of it, and I've never seen that counter before. Now that sounds really impressive. I'll look forward to seeing that. Yeah. So as you were saying, it was a very short match. And because basically the idea was we're still trying to get Yokozuna over as this huge monster who's just tearing through the roster. Yes, at this point, he is actually undefeated. Yes, he's still undefeated. And how long did you say the match went? Three minutes, 45 seconds. And it was basically all Yokozuna, which I wouldn't expect anything less. He, of course, was accompanied by legendary manager and former tag team champion in his own right, Mr. Fuji. How long were they together? Do you know? Uh, he was, at least for the majority of his, Yokozuna's first run or the first part of his run in WWE, Mr. Fuji was there. And for those that do not know, Sumo Wrestling, which I'm not too familiar, but I do know this fact, Yokozuna is actually 
a term in sumo wrestling which basically stands for their grand champion. So basically, he's coming out and he's calling himself grand champion. Especially, this was a big deal because the Royal Rumble itself is in, in two weeks. Right, and yeah, at this point, Yokozuna has declared for the Royal Rumble, so he's he's got his eye on the prize. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll discuss this more once we get to the actual Royal Rumble, but this was actually the first ever Royal Rumble where the winner was guaranteed a world title shot at WrestleMania, which I'm not a fan of, but we'll, like I said, we'll discuss that once we get to Royal Rumble. Now, as I was watching this match, something about the way they were wrestling seemed different to what I've seen recently as I've become a fan, but I can't put my finger on what? Faster style, maybe a little, little more reckless? Uh, I wouldn't say reckless. It was just the style was, I would say, even with what you would consider light heavyweights, the style was slower. It wasn't as flashy as you see now. All right. I, yeah, now you said and it like that. That's fair to say. Yeah, and then once we, we talked about it at this top, and we'll probably talk about it throughout. Rob Bartlett sucked. He was very disinterested. He was very disinterested. He was short of racist itself, almost racist at some point. Um, He kept on calling Yokozuna Yokozuma, and it was just... I didn't realize it as a, you know, like I said, I was just shy of 11 when this debuted. So obviously I didn't pick up on it. But as I'm watching it later on as an adult, oh, this was a very failed experiment. I put him up there with, as one of the worst. Okay, moving on. All right, the next segment is a taped promo with Bobby Heenan talking about Mr. Perfect wanting to know about someone called the Narcissist who will set to debut at the Royal Rumble. Yeah, because what had happened is Bobby Heenan used to manage Mr. Perfect. And during the Survivor Series 92, which was just a couple minutes, a couple months, excuse me, prior to this, it was supposed to be a match between Razor Ramon and Ric Flair versus the Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior. This was one of the many, many documented times that the Ultimate Warrior walked out, left, fired. So they needed a partner. Macho Man wanted Mr. Perfect, who had always been to heal this entire time. And Bobby Heenan's talking to him, and Mr. Perfect's like, you know what, I accept, let's do this. And this was basically the beginning of Mr. Perfect's face turn, which is weird, but it, somehow it worked, because goddamn was Mr. Perfect good. Hmm. As the saying goes, strange times make for strange bedfellows. Absolutely. And the match was actually pretty good if you go back and watch it. Right, now, the next match on the docket is the Steiner Brothers versus the Beverly Brothers. No, it was the Beverly Brothers. It was the Executioners. You, you believe you're talking about the Executioners. So, the Executioners, which actually was the Steiner Brothers, Rick and Scott, who are the father and uncle of current NXT champion Braun Breaker. And you can obviously see where he gets all his stuff from. Um, but the Executioners were two enhancement talents, Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy. Now, Barry Hardy, as of doing the research for this episode, is actually still active in the independents in the uh, northwest, western Ohio area, as in 
Oh, gosh. I remember seeing events he was supposed to be at right before the pandemic hit. Hmm. So he's still quite active. Yeah, I kind of fell away from the independent scene when Northwest Ohio Wrestling closed down. Sure. Um, and then Dwayne Gill, people made no longer during the Attitude Era. Dwayne Gill may be more familiar to people as Gilberg, former uh, light heavyweight champion. He was the Goldberg kind of like comedy act, comedy impression. And, and well, I, I believe it's still open, but at one point he had a wrestling school in the uh, Baltimore area. So he's still somewhat active in wrestling. At this match is going on, we see Doink in the crowd with an arm in, with his arm in a sling, possibly a result of something else that happened off screen. Sure, this was supposed to be, he they were working towards a feud with Crush, and there was supposed to be this whole thing where oh he's injured he can't fight we can't feud and they're building towards. Eventually, they're going to have a match with each other at uh, WrestleMania nine. But he was he was obviously an evil clown. Because clowns are inherently evil. And so we're just going to capitalize on that. And uh, for those that don't know, the original Doink, there was a few Doinks under the face paint. The first Doink, one we see here, was Matt Bourne, who was a big name in the Pacific Northwest area back in the day. And WCW fans might also remember him as Big Josh, the lumberjack with the dancing bears. Like, he actually would come out sometimes with bears. Interesting. Yes. So, according to the match, once again, this is a lot of time, a lot of matches you're going to see for the very beginning of Raw, we're all like this. You're going to have one decent match between two of the quote-unquote named wrestlers, and the wrestlers were their squash matches against enhancement talents. This was actually the latter. At one point, Scott Steiner, you got to remember, Scott was the agile one at the time. Anybody might remember him at Big Papa Pump, but Scott was the agile one. Rick, he, one of the executioners, like, I didn't know which one was which. They both were hooded with, uh, like, full body suits. You, there, was an, there was an expression where Scott Center hit a man so hard with the, the standard line and knocked his dick stiff. There's actually some truth to that expression. Uh, I was a combat medic for several years in the Army, and there is something called a prior prism where if someone can suffer enough trauma suddenly, they... Um, for lack of a better term, produce an erection just off the trauma. What we used to call a trauma boner. So that's where the uh, terminology of hitting somebody so hard knock your dick stiff comes from. I had not heard that before. Mm -hmm. But that was the stutter line. That was whoo, when Rick hit you with that, you felt that. So yeah, That match lasted for three minutes and one second. Uh-huh. Once again, we're, we're working towards, you know, at the time, the Steiner brothers were one of the top tag teams in WWE. And I think this was going towards the end of their run. They would be back in w, w, excuse me, WCW, I believe, either by the end of this year or early 94. Alrighty, moving on from that match, we cut to cut outside to Sean Mooney again. Bobby Heenan's trying to sneak in, dressed as well Bartlett's aunt. A little bit insensitive, but it's reflective of the times. Things like things like dressing and things like that were more acceptable. I like. I wouldn't call it like this. Is where I'll respectfully disagree with you. I wouldn't call it as insensitive. This wasn't. He wasn't trying to. I don't think he was trying to do anything insensitive. I would look this more comical, as in like when 
Bugs Bunny used to do it. This was a very Bugs Bunny style moment. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that comparison. Like, I don't think there was he was trying to come off as disrespectful or anything malicious. This was just, hey, I need to sneak in. It worked for Bugs Bunny. Why couldn't it work for Bobby Heenan? Obviously, it didn't work, but I can see where he's going with through with that. And yeah, I can. Yeah, now you put it like that, I can see where you're going. Sure. I, even nowadays, looking through it as, you know, we're more sensitive to people these days with how they choose to express themselves. Even with those those proverbial glasses, I didn't see anything offensive with this. This was just a, like a gentleman's preferred blondes or Bugs Bunny type thing. All right, moving on from that, we now have a promo for Razor Ramon and Bret Hart, who will be facing each other at the Royal Rumble. Can we talk, this was... Yeah, this was an in-ring promo with Vince McMahon conducting the promo. Can we talk about how 90s Razor Ramon's shirt was? That was probably the most one of the most 90s things I've ever seen. Yes, and I and I wish to watch Saved by the Bell, even. Um, yeah, this was a good promo. It was very short. Once again, this brawl at the time was only an hour, and it was an hour up until, I want to say, oh, God, 96, 97, maybe? So, but basically the idea of the promo was Brett had just won the world title in Canadian Thanksgiving in November of last year, or was it October, I believe? October is when they have Thanksgiving in Canada. Won it for Ric Flair at a house show in Canada. So he's in the middle of his first title reign. And Razor Ramon, basically the idea was, hey, I've only been here for eight months and I'm where you're at, where it took you eight years. I'm better than you. I'm going to win. During the course of this promo, we also see that Razor Ramon attacked Bret Hart's brother Owen on a previous show to try to get to Bret. Absolutely, he was uh, Owen was doing a backstage interview with one of the interviewers in the locker room, and Razor Ramon jumped him in the locker room and uh, thrashed him thusly. Now, for those of you who might not know, Razor Ramon's real name is Scott Hall. He worked with WCW under that name as part of the NWO, and he is a two-time WWE Hall of Famer, 2014 as the, as the Razor Ramon persona, 2019 as the Scott Hall persona with the NWO. Oh, yeah. Scott Hall is one of the very famous. Everybody knows Scott Hall. Everybody knows Razor Ramon. We're all big fans of him. And, yeah, he was a huge part of the NWO. Moving on from that, we have an international champion, intercontinental championship match. Max Moon is challenging Shawn Michaels. So, yeah, everybody knows who Shawn Michaels is. We don't need to discuss that. Max Moon at the time was a wrestler named Paul Diamond, but he was not the original Max Moon. Uh, originally, when Max Moon was being developed and put together, was done by Conan. Everybody's familiar with Conan, especially from WCW. Uh, he was... Uh, Huge Lucha Libre legend as well. Uh, still semi-active today in specific promotions, but the idea of Maximum is a spaceman. And somebody like me, nine, eight, nine, ten years old, loved this guy. Bright blue colors. He would come with a jetpack that would shoot streamers out of his wrists, smoke and everything. And I get the idea of the jetpack. It's supposed to be like, oh, I'm going to jetpack to the ring, which you really even can't do that now. But the thing that was hokey about it it would shoot smoke, and while it shot smoke, he would hop up the stairs. It would shoot smoke again, and he would hop up the stairs again, which, not the best. But he was cool. Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like, certainly sounds cool. 
Uh, this was the longest match of the show, and it was actually pretty, pretty even for the most part. Yeah, unusually, this match actually went through a commercial break, was the first one of the night to do so. I believe it was the only one to do so as well. Hmm. Yes, and this match was not a squash, and by virtue of that, it was probably the best one I saw all night. Sure. Uh, Paul Diamond really didn't have a lot going as his his name himself in the uh, wrestling he was actually no, also known as one member of the Orient Express back in the day, who was also managed by uh, Mr. Fuji, who we saw earlier in the show. Now, while this is going on, we have another segment with Doink in the crowd. And then we have Mike Tyson on the phone, some su- some angle that's being played. For no reason. No, it was Rob Bartlett. For some reason, they're trying to do a, a interview with Mike Tyson, who was... Uh, in jail at the time for um, his sexual assault charges. Um, he was in prison. And they're trying to say, which I get, you're not trying to read too much into this. One, the the Tyson impression was awful. But they're trying to say how he's watching this while he's in solitary confinement and was still able to talk to somebody on the phone while watching it at the same time while in solitary confinement. Yeah, you scrutinize it at all, and it just falls apart. Oh, yeah. And this went on for, I want to say, a good third of the match. This had no bearing whatsoever. This didn't... Like, once again, they're trying to do the shock jock. Oh, it's uncensored. Anything can happen on Raw. And it fell flat horribly. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, the good Max Moon had this for a good part of the match. It was actually even... Late uh, was able to land his finisher. He had what most people call it the steamroller. Had Shawn Michaels on his shoulders, did a front roll with it. We saw later on Finley would do it in the WWE for a while, but it was the steamroller that was his finisher at the time. Hmm. And uh, Shawn Michaels was able to kick out of it. Like I said, this was a fairly competitive match. Hmm. Yeah, right. At, and then at the end, Michaels wins with a simple suplex, which I noticed very different from today, where pretty much any move that's not a defined finisher is kicked out of almost the almost a hundred percent. Sure, well, because at the time, like he did land the super kick, but it was not known as the super kick, or sweet chin music. It wasn't his finisher at the time, more of a a setup or a trademark move. But the suplex, known as the teardrop suplex, was his finisher. So that was what, when he first started doing his first heel run to Shawn Michaels. That wasn't his finisher. Alrighty, thank you for correcting me. Mm-hmm. All right, now this match lasted for seven minutes and fifty six seconds. And so I would be remiss. I believe it's right about here. But if we passed it, there was the Royal Rumble Control Center. Yeah, we're we're. Yeah, that, that comes up after Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty cut some promos on each other. They'll be facing each other at the Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental Championship. And we're going through that, and we, of course, were shown by uh, Mean Gene Oakland. My voice, my childhood voice of wrestling. Um, he was going through, showing all the matches that are going on during the part itself, and then the Rumble, which he goes through a good amount of the participants... And some of them, I believe Mr. Perfect had a promo about how he's going to win. Mr. Fuji spoke for Yokozuna about how Yokozuna's going to win. But my favorite one was done by Hall of Famer. You're going to see a lot of Hall of Famers, at least in this episode. 
Uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I was a big fan of him as a kid. And you know how you're going to, you, you cut a promo, like, oh, I'm going to go in there, no friends, 29 people, I'm going to win this, I'm going to WrestleMania. Right, that's basically the default. Sure. And I get something like that. It's quick, it does its job. Good old Hacksaw comes in and goes, well, you know what, guys? Uh, Hacksaw's just going to come in. There's no friends. I may not win, but gee golly gosh, I'm going to give it my all. I'm just going to do my best. I may not win, but I'm sure going to try. And I'm like, like Hacksaw, like, I love you, buddy, but that doesn't instill any hope that you're going to win. But if you're going to be like, well, I'm going to try. I'm probably not going to win, but I'm just going to give it my all. And I'm like, why would you say you're going to win? On the one hand, I can see tempering expectations, but on the other hand, you got to go big or go home. Well, yeah, this is the, like I said, this is the first Royal Rumble where the winner gets a guaranteed world title shot at WrestleMania. When you be like, yeah, I'm going in there. I don't care if it's a, a friend or a foe. I'm throwing everybody out. I'm going to WrestleMania. I'm getting that title shot. And Hacksaw's like, yeah, I may win. Probably not. I'm probably not going to win, but you know what? I'll just, I'll try my best, guys. I, I didn't find it bad. I actually found that almost humorous. I think endearing would be the word. Yeah, endearing. All right, now, moving on from that, we next have another Bobby Heenan segment outside. He's playing Rob Bartlett's uncle, a Jewish stereotype this time. Yeah, the very uh, the Hasidic uh, Jewish with the hat. He had the curls on the side. Yeah, big long beard. Yeah, and I like how Sean Mooney's going... Plays with it where it's like, oh, hello, sir. Well, unfortunately, you know, it's Bobby Heenan. Like, he can't see that it's obviously Bobby Heenan in a wig. And he plays through it, like, especially when he talked about his aunt and now his uncle. Where it's like, oh, well, gee, Willikers, I'm so sorry. It's sold out. Oh, Bobby, what are you doing here? Like, I thought it was kind of playing the straight man. It went well. Yeah, he actually says, oh, hey, Mr. Mr. Uncle, we saw your wife earlier. Yeah. But it was, I thought it was funny. Like, he played the straight man pretty well. And the last match of the evening is Damian Demento versus The Undertaker, and both of these guys are enormous. Yeah, uh, Damian Demento obviously was not long for the WWE. I honestly don't believe he was there a whole year. Maybe a year and a half. He was not there very long. And very odd gimmick. Very odd uh, attire. I'm not, I wasn't, I don't even remember him as a kid. We really don't need to say anything about The Undertaker because um, it's The Undertaker. Legit one of the world, the all-time greats. What I will say is that as this match, this this match is fairly brief, but The Undertaker is very mobile. Obviously, this is because he's that much younger since this is the 90s. Sure, he debuted in 91? No, I'm sorry. He debuted in 1990. And that would have been that year's Survivor Series, right? Yeah, it was that Survivor Series. He was a Million Dollar Man's mystery partner. Uh, first, actually, Paul Bear was not his first manager. It was actually Brother Love, Bruce Pritchard. Uh, and he had only been wrestling maybe a couple years prior. And he had a run in WCW as Mean Mark Callis. So even when he debuted, he's probably maybe five years into his career at all, if, if that long. Now, this match only lasted for two minutes and 25 seconds, but The Undertaker did look pretty good in this match. Oh, sure. I mean, you're going to, if he was in the middle of uh, his first face run, so, and of course, The Undertaker's always been book strong. He's always going to look strong no matter who he's wrestling, win or lose. 
And like I said, this was this was one of the many squash matches we see today uh, on Monday Night Raw for the first couple years. Nothing really came out of this. There was no progression of anything. This was just, here, look, if we're going to go big, we're going to show The Undertaker. Right after that match, we have an interview between Vince McMahon and Doink the Crown, which is interrupted by Crush. Which this, I found that I found this weird that that you have the Undertaker, one of your biggest stars, just wrestled. Whether it was a a squash match or not, you have the Undertaker, but yet you end it with. And this is nothing against Crush or Doink, personally or professionally, but you have the Undertaker just wrestled a match. Why are you going to have the show end with a interview segment between Crush and Doink? To me, that makes no sense. Yeah, very strange choice, let's say. Like, it wasn't a bad promo, and I get what they were doing. They were pushing the feud along, but I would have switched them. I would have had the promo and then ended with The Undertaker. But basically, the promo was, or uh, Doink's coming out, he's doing his... Gimmicks and shtick. And Crush, who was the also the former crush of Demolition. This is uh, Brian Adams, who would also go on to NWO. He would also beat Chronic in WCW, one half of Chronic. Hmm. Uh, he's like, hey, he was basically, he was very popular with the kids. Very large man, bright colors. You can see how this was a very big character that was big with the kids. He's like, I don't like the way you're treating kids. Look, you need to stop this. And if you don't stop it, I will stop it personally. And that's been, like I said, they're working towards their, they're continuing their feud. They're working towards their match at WrestleMania 9. And Crush gets squirted with a water pistol Doink had, and Doink then books it out of there. Because if you ever see the size of Crush, yeah, I would, I would stand there and wait to see what his reaction was. He was a very... Very large man, and his finisher was he would just squeeze your head until you tapped out. That sounds painful. Yeah, it was, it was, he would sit, they would be seated, he would stand over them, put a, a hand, and these were, like I said, this was a large man on each side of the head and just squeeze, and there would be times where he would just lift them up off the ground with his hands and slam them back down. Hmm. Yeah, we then have one more commercial break, and then the show closes with Bobby Heenan being told, hey, you can go up now. Oh, by the way, the show's over. So, hey, come on in, Bobby. Show's over. I kind of found this funny. Like I said, it was it the, this whole running joke with Sean Mooney and Bobby Heenan. I thought was was funny. It was harmless, and it uh, it did its job. We're just hey, Bobby Heenan's in there. Let's and he was very as good as he was being that smarmy manager. You wanted to see his either him or his uh, his people get beat up. He was also very good at doing the funny stuff. There was some stuff he did with the late Gorilla Monsoon as their commentary duo, which my all-time favorite commentary duo is Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. They worked well off each other. And then he was just very good at making him... He was very good at laughing at himself. Yeah, that's important in anybody who's in the entertainment business. Sure. He he could he could take a joke at his expense, and he was very good at it. Uh, but yeah, that, that was it. Raw's over. So, compared to now, uh, what did you think of this first episode of Raw? Considering it as it was, the series premiere, I think it did what it needed to do. Obviously, it's not going to hold up compared to now, but that's kind of an unfair lens to look through. Sure, but as somebody who may not have watched it live and has only been watching wrestling for 
regularly for less than 10 years. You know, this this might have been somewhat of a culture shock. Oh yeah, that's absolutely absolutely this was kind of, this was a shock. Like the the di- the different wrestling styles, the different ways of cutting promos, the different interface for lack of a better word, the graphics. Yeah, and they would they would uh revisit this with when they would do like the retro raw or the raw rewind type special episodes of raw they do lately they would bring back this stuff. Uh and I would say just by default, my favorite match of this episode was uh, Shawn Michaels and Max Moon. I'll agree with you on that. That was the only one that wasn't a squash, so it was not a hard choice. No, it, it was actually a pretty solid match, as is anyways. Okay, so like I said, we go with the wrestling episodes, we go through all the main television episodes of wrestling uh, throughout the week. And the next episode, which was actually the fo- that following Wednesday was Clash of the Champions 22. Now, this was, this was a concept that you were 100% not familiar with whatsoever. No, I had never heard of something like this. Okay, so there's there's going to be a little bit of history lessons. Pull up your chairs, kids. It's going to be a bit of a history lesson. Starcade, which was the flagship pay-per-view for Jim Crockett Promotions, WCW, now was in December. It used to be a big Thanksgiving show where they would bring in all the Smaller promotions, and they would have several matches. The uh, WWF came in and did Survivor Series the same day. The first ever Survivor Series. Which used to be all tag team elimination matches. Four or five people on a side. And they told the pay-per-view providers, hey, either you show... And, you know, obviously WWF was a little bit bigger at the time. They're like, either you show our pay-per-view instead of Starcade, or you never get our pay-per-views ever again. Highly illegal. But at the time, this was pay-per-views were still a new concept. So I believe, if I read the article correctly or read up on it correctly, at least over eighty percent of the pay-per-view providers uh, said okay, and it, it killed the Starcade that year. That's a very large proportion. Sure, because you got to remember, pay-per-view was it back then. You're talking mid '80s, so pay-per-view was it. There was no streaming. There was no, I'll catch it later. It's like no pay-per-view was it. So what WCW did, and Jim, it was more Jim Crockett Promotions back in the day, but what they did was during WrestleMania f- 5, I want to say 5, 4 or 5, they had something, they on free TV, mind you, because obviously WrestleMania was going to be on pay-per-view, what WCW or Jim Crockett Promotions did on free TV was show something called Clash of the Champions. Whereas, I mean, anybody growing up in the 80s knows you never really saw a lot of the bigger main event stars much on TV. You had to go either to a live show or watch on pay-per-view. Like, you, would, you wouldn't get your Hulk Hogan's more than a couple times a year on television. So what they would do is they would have... Yeah, that's obviously contrasted. Yeah, contrasted today by... You see them all the time. So what they would do is they would have pay-per-view quality matches, cards... And then you would see all the main big stars of the show in the on free TV. So it's like, would I pay $35 or more to watch Hulk Hogan? Or would I watch like Ric Flair and Stink for free on television? Right, put it like that, it's a pretty easy choice. Sure, and so this was basically Clash of the Champions was made out of spite. And it went on from, oh God, mid-80s, I would say almost up until... 97? Like, it was during the, the Nitro time frame. It was still going on when Nitro was a thing. Ooh. 
So, uh, yeah, we're in the Mecca Arena, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As the show opens, we go to Tony Schiavone and Bill Watts. Yeah, so B- Bill Watts was the head of WCW at the time. I honestly, I used to watch, I like watching Mid-South Wrestling. I like a lot of the older stuff. Was not a fan of Bill Watts's style. He was a very name-droppy commentator. He would really not speak a lot of the matches, but he would be like, oh, well, you know, I was just doing this event with Joe Schmoll and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, he used to like to get himself over. And then uh, Eric Watts, which we would see in an interview here in a minute, was his son, who he really, really pushed to be a thing. He just never, for one reason or another, just never got it. But it was he was supposed to wrestle Cactus Jack tonight and was involved in a quote-unquote altercation with Arn Anderson, which we'll see once we get to WCW Saturday night. Yeah, and it was just, they were just opening up the show, and they also said that Van Hammer uh, will not be available for the arm wrestling contest he had with Vinny Vegas. Kevin Nash in one of his earlier gimmicks. And I found this slightly humorous because, yeah, not only was Van Hammer scheduled to be in this armor, he had won an arm wrestling contest. It was a tournament. They made no mention that Van Hammer was a part of the main event. So they talked about how he couldn't make the arm wrestling contest because of an injury. They didn't mention that. Oh, by the way, yeah, he's also in the main event. Which I think you would have mentioned the main event more than the arm wrestling contest. But hey, what do I know? As, as the show starts, we have Larry Zabisco interview Eric Watts. He spent, as you said, he was suspended for the night because of the so-called altercation. The promo was not good. It was not good whatsoever. Yeah, I was not overly thrilled with it. Like, I don't know. I don't remember because once again, I don't remember watching this live. So I don't remember if this was a live interview or a taped interview. But in the interest of being nice, this was not a very good promo. Moving forward, we have our first match of the night. Johnny B. Bad versus Cactus Jack. They had tagged together at a previous event, Leave the Lottery, which didn't go well. Well, yeah, yeah. That, this is what I liked is that Johnny B. Bad is going to be Eric Watts' replacement. And I like that instead of just getting a random guy in the locker room, hey, you're wrestling Catches Jack tonight. There was some storyline behind this. And you had mentioned the Leave the Lottery, which was in the this past Starcade, so maybe not even a month ago. What it was, for those not familiar with Leave the Lottery, they did this a handful of times. They would... Draw names out of a hat. And it could have been your tag partner. Or it could have been somebody you were feuding with. Basically, it was, if I draw you your name and whoever I draw is your partner, you guys have to go out and have a tag team match with two random people. And if you win, you go on to a battle royal at the end of the show and the winner of the battle royal got a check. And these two were a tag team. Did not go well. So at least there's a storyline reason why these two were fighting. Uh, Cactus Jack, obviously, is Mick Foley. Everyone knows who he is. And Johnny B. Bad was, uh, would go on to WC- WWE as Mark Merrow. Yeah, I know the name, but I don't know anything about him. Sure, you know, he was great. He would come in. He was first known as the Wild Man, Mark Merrow. He was also, he's a very accomplished boxer. He was a Golden Gloves champion up in the Buffalo area. So over there for a while, he would also have somewhat of a boxer gimmick in WWF. But this was a, he was, a, he was basically Little Richard in WCW. I can see that. No, that's literally like he was Little Richard. And the funny thing was, is when he was signed by WWF, that's why he was signed. Vince McMahon liked the gimmick. He had no idea that Johnny B. Bad. The story goes that he had no idea that Johnny B. Bad and Mark Miro were two different people. Interesting little anecdote there. Yeah. And uh, he's no longer in wrestling, but Mark Miro is actually now a very 
accomplished and well-respected motivational speaker. He goes around to different schools and talks to kids about, you know, trying to, you know, do what you can to be a better person sort of thing. So, you know, props to him for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a great career to go into. Sure. Uh, but yeah, this was, I believe, three minutes. Do you think you have the time? Yeah, two minutes, 53 seconds. And you know what? Uh, this wasn't a bad match for a sub-three-minute match. Yeah, there's some talk early in the match about about their contrasting styles. Johnny wants to wrestle. Jack wants to take it to the floor, as it were. Sure. And even for sub-three minutes, I think this actually was a decent match. The, the, the whole idea that is Johnny B. Bad would have more of a... They were both risk-takers, but Johnny B. Bad's risk-taker was more of a flashier one than Catches Jack, I'm just going to, you know beat you with me. Uh, and up until the very end, Johnny B. Bad was in control basically this whole match. The end of the match is Johnny misses a sunset flip and then Cactus Jack hits an elbow drop for the pin. Yeah, like that was, they said during the, the uh, replays, you make one, sometimes it only takes one mistake and that's what it was. He went for that top rope sunset flip, which, which was, one, it was kind of impressive for the time and two, it was one of his big moves. And, you know, some, you know, all it takes is that one mistake to capitalize and, you know, Catcher Jack comes away with the win on this. And after that, we flash back to Tony Schiavone with news of the new NWA champion, the Great Muda, who's defeated Matsuhiro Chano at the Tokyo Dome, and he's apparently going to be on WCW Saturday Night at some point. Oh yeah, like I was a absolutely, yeah, I was an absolute massive Great Muda fan as a child. I mean, I still am to this day. He's actually active to this day. Uh, he's now, last I checked, is wrestling in pro wrestling Noah in Japan, but yeah, still actively wrestling to this day. Uh, because he was one of the first two Japanese wrestlers I ever saw. And they were both in WCW. It was him and uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, who retired, but he only retired maybe more than a couple years ago. So these guys were very active up until very recently. Right after that, we have a music video about staying in school, which introduces <laughs> two cold Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this video. It's great. It's super cheesy, but we do need to talk about this video. Because um, Two Cold Scorpio was just recently a new guy. And you got to consider, 1990, the moves that he was doing in 1993 were impressive because you weren't seeing these moves in 1993. He was doing the, the corkscrew leg drops in 450s. Nobody was doing that. This guy was very innovative of what we see today. Who, by the way, once again, still wrestling up until this day. A lot of the high-flying stuff, like... Did he innovate that, or did he bring it over from somewhere? Or uh, I know he had extensive time in Japan, but once again, everybody like there's really nothing new in wrestling because it's been around for so long. But at the time, he was doing stuff that no one else was doing. Like you, you saw maybe top rope stuff. You maybe saw like a splash, a cross body, an elbow drop, leg drop, something like that. You weren't seeing four fifties. You weren't seeing the corkscrew leg drops. You weren't seeing. Very, very rarely would you ever see a moonsault at this time. But, so this was highly impressive. And what's, and he's still doing these moves to this day, by the way. He just wrestled a couple weeks ago. Where's he wrestling now? Uh, he's wrestling in the independents all over, all over the country. Still phenomenal shape, given 30 years later. But yeah, he still wrestles at a high level. The, we do need to talk about this music video. Because what it is, it's a bunch of kids playing basketball. And some girls come up and go, hey, aren't you guys supposed to be in school? And they're like, nah, we're skipping school. We're going to the arcade. And here comes this this very, like, funk beat 
with even like female backup singers, and this limo pulls up out of nowhere. This white limo. And out comes two cold Scorpio. And he goes, Aren't you guys supposed to be in school? He's like, nah, we're not going. And he goes, No, you need to study, you need to go into school. He's like, Come on, we'll go, you know, I'll take you to school. And the kids are like, Are you letting us ride the limo? He's like, nah, well, I'm making you walk. But they don't walk. They start stepping. They get into a dance number. And I'm like, hey, cool on you for letting the kids, you know, telling the kids, hey, stay in school. Do what you need to do to be a good kid. And I get you may not want to let them ride in the limo. I get it. I've been in limos. They're very nice. And you're like, you know what? We're going to walk. Cool. But if the kids are already late, why are we doing a dance number all the way to school when you just told the kids, you know what? Just just start walking. Yeah, just a pure ball of cheese. And it was it was entertaining. Yeah, that's what it was. It was entertaining. Uh, he was actually wrestling Scotty Flamingo, who would go on to much greater success as Raven in ECW. So this was the future Raven. A wild uh, contrast to his uh, gimmick and style in WCW as Scotty Flamingo. Very flashy smirks and lots of neon and, ha, ah, look at me, I'm Scotty Flamingo. As opposed to the very dark, broody, nihilistic Raven. Yeah, as Scorpio is, as the match starts, we see Scorpio very maneuverable in the ring. And Nacho's also pointed out he loves to attack from the apron to the floor. Oh yeah, like some of the some of the moves he was doing was. If you're looking at it nowadays, even if you're looking at it nowadays, you realize my man was doing this in '93. You're like, this is impressive. Like he could he could fly like nobody. There was honestly nobody. Doing, like I said, he, there was nobody doing what he was doing in 93. And it certainly was impressive. Oh, yeah. Even to this day, it was like, like I said, in 2022, we're in the second month of 2022. He's still doing this stuff. I can't even imagine the kind of conditioning it takes to stay in that kind of shape for that long. Oh, he's he basically, I mean, obviously he has less hair, but just I haven't been able to watch a full match. But just when I've been able to see... He can still do these, like, regularly, and they still look nice. Like, he's been kept himself in, you know, fantastic shape. He's been able to keep up his abilities to where he can still do this 30 years later. And that's really impressive. With a style like that, you would think he, the, his body wouldn't hold up. Oh, it, as far as I know, it has, because he's... Whew. So, but yeah, we're going back and forth on this match. This was a very back-and-forth style match. One of the things that was of note to me was that using the flat of your foot was legal. I don't know why that that would need to be clarified. Yeah, you got me on that one. Also noted that the five count before disqualification on the ropes choking was a thing this far back. Probably goes all the way back to the beginning of professional wrestling. For the most part, that's always been a thing that you've always seen. That way, you know, it's just a good way to milk when the bad guys are doing something very heinous. Right, I, I got you. Toward the end of the match, Scorpio hits a flying 180 crossbody splash from the top rope, which I would expect to end the match, but Flamingo actually kicks out of that. Oh, yeah, like, it, it almost looked like uh, a Twisted Bliss, almost. Yeah, I, I, can see, I can see that comparison. It kind of reminded me of somewhat of a modified Twisted Bliss that Alexa Bliss would do later on. Yeah, hers, would, hers did more of, like, a flip with it. He spun with his, and she did more of a, a flip. But it was very, they're very, they seem very similar at least. The match ends shortly thereafter with a 540 splash for a to match length of four minutes and three seconds. Yeah, and they did a lot. They were able to get a lot in, in four minutes. Yeah, that was a very 
Yeah, the match was very dense is the word I would use. Okay, yeah, I like that. Moving on from that, we now have the description of the Thunder Cage match, for which is the main event. It's got me thinking of Hell in a Cell. Yeah, it very looked much like Hell in the Cell. It was not the first time they used this either. Like, this was, if you want to look up the House of Horrors match from Halloween Havoc a couple years ago. Classic in how bad the match was. But regardless, this was very Hell in the Cellish size with with no top, though. Very, I don't think it got used more than once a year, once every other year. Contrast that with, say, Hell in a Cell today. You see that every year, sometimes multiple times a year. Yeah. All right. As as this is going on, we're, we're told this match is going to be four on three, and we cut to a flashback reel explaining what's going on. The U.S. heavyweight champion, Rick Rude, suffered a neck injury, and so Harley Race, his manager, puts Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, and Cactus Jack in a match to see who's going to replace him under street fight rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big Van Vader interferes and and beats down Cactus Jack, assisted by Orndorff and Harley. But Orndorff is later incapacitated as they're standing tall in the ring when CJ attacked with a shovel. So, but basically this was, we're, we're putting the seeds in for what would become Cactus Jack's face turn. Basically, he causes the disqualification, making sure that Orndorff wins to take over Rick Rude's spot. Cactus Jack is not happy with this. He starts using the shovel to beat up uh, Harley Race. Paul Orndorff, and then Vader comes out and just way lays Cactus Jack bad, and they just, it's a three-on-one mugging. Yeah, those are never fun to be on the receiving end of. Sure. Um, but yeah, so it's like, Jack, you're out, Paul, you're in. And this whole Rick Rude not being able to be here, we would have some repercussions following in WCW Saturday Night, which we'll get into a little bit later. All right, after that promo is our next match, which is Chris Benoit versus Brad Armstrong. Okay, and I do want to go ahead and make a preface before we talk about this match. Yes, we are talking about Chris Benoit. Yes, we, everybody that listens to this, anybody that knows anything about wrestling, or you, you don't even have to know about wrestling, knows what happens about Chris Benoit. Yeah, I, I had heard about that, and I wasn't even a wrestling fan. Sure. So, and obviously, we're, we're not going to touch on that. We're not going to, you know, what, you know, conspiracies, this, that, and the other. It happened, it's tragic, it's over with. But... For the sake of completing this, we do need to talk about Chris Benoit and what able what he did in matches promos from now until then. We're not going to talk about whether or not we're not here to glorify Chris Benoit. We're just here to talk about his matches and promos. But I just wanted to preface this saying that, you know, obviously you're going to hear about him and we don't condone what happened, but we still need to talk about what he did in wrestling in the sake of completing this. Right, we can't just not talk about it. Sure, absolutely. Especially towards the end when he was a bigger part of the shows. That out of the way. As I watch this match, I note that the the motion is much faster than it seems to be in modern wrestling. Perhaps that was what that was the way the style changed before I started watching. Sure, no, they, they were both very technical styles. Which Brad Armstrong was actually the uh, current light heavyweight champion, or was a former light heavyweight champion, and had more of a, the slower technical style, and then we all know the style that Chris Benoit was famous for, and they just, they gelled together well right here in this match. I thought this was, they gelled together very well. Yeah, so among other things I saw Benoit doing in this match, Armstrong had him on down with a knuckle lock, and Benoit was able to bridge out and reverse it. That's always impressive to me. That, and on top of that, you have to talk about his core, where Brad Armstrong, or whoever was on the bottom, they would do this back and forth would put their knees, they would bridge, 
the other one would put their knees on the other person's stomach and they would be able to hold that, hold that weight right there on their core. Yeah, that's that's one of the most impressive things I've seen as I've been looking at the classic stuff. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And uh, we're going through this. There's one spot that even I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. There was a, like Chris, Chris Jericho was known for the uh, triangle dropkick where somebody was on the apron, he would jump on the turnbuckle and dropkick him. Chris Benoit won up that. Brad Armstrong was on the outside. Chris Benoit did the setup for a triangle where he hopped up on the turnbuckle and jumped, but instead of a dropkick, he jumped over the top rope and landed a clothesline. Yeah, that was that was one of the most impressive spots I had seen to this to this point. He, yeah, even today, like I I never saw that today. Yeah, that that was that was a little scary. Come, if I'm talking frankly. Oh yeah, there's a reason you probably don't see that much today. But it was just the fact that yeah, now this match goes back and forth a lot. There, there, you can tell they're e- it's an even match, and so. Eventually, Benoit rallies and wins with a full Nelson into a bridging German suplex at a match time of 9 minutes and 15 seconds. Yep, that was the famed Dragon Suplex. Oh, is that what that's called? Okay. Yeah, that the Dragon Suplex is the half Nelson Suplex. All right, moving on from there, we have a segment looking at the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. They are, at this time, the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Champs. That's in the Appalachian area. And they'll be appearing at Super Brawl 3 in February, the first time outside tag champs are going to appear on a WCW pay-per-view. Which, this was a big deal. This is the whole, you know, we're talking, everybody's talking about the uh, Forbidden Door now. But this was also another big deal where you have not only somebody from another promotion, which everybody, if you watch WCW, you knew who the Rock and Roll Express were. They made their name in the Jim Crockett promotions. They are considered one of the greatest tag teams ever. And they're actually, speaking of still wrestling today... Uh, Ricky Morton just announced that they're actually doing their retirement tour this year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they were wrestling, I believe it was the, in the package, I believe they're wrestling, I believe, the Heavenly Bodies. But it was just for those that may not remember the Rock and Roll Express, this is a taste of what you're going to get at Super Bowl. Now, as as the video package is going, I see Jim Cornette as, as the, one of their managers. I know that name, and I know he's a wrestling pundit, but I don't really follow him. Yeah, like, b- before he you know, got his podcast all set up, was a well-known um, wrestling manager. He also, he always managed the bad guys. He was always a thorn in the side of the Rock and Roll Express. So he was managing the Heavenly Bodies. He was also the owner, and I believe one of the bookers of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So that was that was his baby. Moving on from this package, we have the strongest arm competition that was mentioned earlier. That was won by Van Hammer, who again, that was earlier, he's injured. Sure, he won the tournament. What it was, I think they called it the strongest arm tournament. He won the tournament against Vinny Vegas in the finals. And for those that don't know, we mentioned at the top of the, the segment, Vinny Vegas is Kevin Nash. We don't need to talk about Kevin Nash's accomplishments. He's had many. This was an early Kevin Nash. This was pre-Diesel. He would, honestly, he would by the end of the year, he would be Diesel in WWF. This was toward the end of his first WCW run. Not his only gimmick in WCW, but this is actually the first one I remember. This, is, this was my introduction as a child to Kevin Nash was, that I remember personally, was Vinny Vegas. And I like it that, you know, Kevin Nash always had that deep, methodical voice. And he still does to this day. Like, when he speaks, you listen. Thing is, with Vinny Vegas, he's like, hey, oh, bada bing, da-da-da. So the idea behind this arm wrestling match is that during the finals of the other one, Vinny Vegas is like, hey, this is not fair. I didn't use my strong arm. 
you know, he had an advantage. I was using my weaker arm. I want to match with my stronger arm. And this is what set this up. Yeah. His opponent in this, Tony Atlas, didn't get to compete in the actual tournament and was put in here to replace Van Hammer, I believe. Yeah, who was legit one of the, at the time, at his prime. By the way, Tony Atlas, another Hall of Famer. You got to consider how deep Hall of Fame-wise we are at this time frame. Tony Atlas, legit, not only was he one half of the first ever all African-American world tag team champions back in the day, was legit massively strong at his peak. He was one of the strongest men in wrestling at one point. So this was not just anybody. This is a guy that has some, uh, some. he's got some meat in the muscles. Their builds appear fairly similar at a glance, maybe a slight edge to Tony. Yeah, like Tony was more of a, he was the bulky weight. And uh, Vinny Vegas or Kevin Nash was, he was leaner. But you also got to consider those that may not realize before wrestling, Kevin Nash played basketball. So he had more of a basketball player's build. Did not know that. Well, Tony Atlas, yeah, Kevin Nash played basketball in college. So you can see where he has more of a basketball player's build, while Tony Atlas's was more of a bodybuilder's build. Uh, this segment goes fairly quickly. Vinny wins pretty uneventfully. Yeah, this was just a, this was more of a segment, less than a match. Yeah, so then we have a W ad for WCW main event, which I believe was a Saturday night program at this time. WCW Saturday night was their flagship show, and you would get stuff like main event, pro, that sort of thing. Gotcha. When we come back from commercial, we have our next match, the Wrecking Crew from Detroit versus the Z-Man and Johnny Gunn. Yes, and then I would consider, I once again, I uh, I had to redo my notes before we started this, and I forgot to write it down. The Wrecking Crew, there was um, one of the members was a Laurinaitis, and I forget the name. Marcus. Marcus, thank you. If the name Laurinaitis rings a bell, not only is... Johnny Ace, Johnny Laurinaitis from, you know, People Power, his brother. His brother also was Animal from the Legion of Doom. So there was a lot of wrestling in the Laurinaitis family. And his nephew would go on to not only be a fantastic player at Ohio State University, he would have quite the career in the NFL. So the Laurinaitises is very athletic family. A lot of pro wrestlers and football players. Yeah, I, I, I remember the Laurinaitis from OSU. I can't remember his first name, though. I believe it was Joe. But yeah, he went on to have a quite a successful career in the NFL. So the uh, Laurinaitis has made some big dudes. Now, this match starts off with Z-Man and Rage doing some chain wrestling. Sure, and the, the, the thing was, if you notice that Johnny Gunn and Z-Man were kind of like matching with her attire, and their theme song was kind of like an instrumental of Sharp Dressed Man by ZZ Top, they were trying to do a gimmick where it was very, they were doing promo videos where they were going to like, you know, salons and like fancy clothing stores where it's like, hey, we're ladies men, we dress nice, we're good looking dudes, the ladies love us. It wasn't as like, it wasn't a flashy ladies man gimmick, it was somewhat subtle in the ring, but the promo videos were like, hey, we're driving nice cars, you know, we shop at expensive stores, you know, we're good looking men, and so that was the idea. I haven't seen any of those promo videos yet, but I can, I can, I can, I see where it's going. Yeah. I mean, they were done. The tag team was done by the end of the year. I believe they had one of their last matches at Halloween Havoc of 93. Now, one of the more impressive, an early spot is Rage presses Z-Man above his head. That's got to be really hard. Oh, yeah. Like, you, press slams are always fantastic to watch, especially when it's a 
not a smaller man. Like Z-Man was not a, like a large man. He was he was more of the faster light heavyweight style, but he also wasn't a tiny man either. As as the match progresses, we have Johnny knocking Rage and Fury down with a double clothesline suicide dive over the top rope. That was really impressive to see. Oh yeah, very this was this was another one of those moves that was like it would be somewhat impressive now, but in 93, you're like, oh my God. And then after after Johnny does that, he sits on the apron, grabs the top rope, and levers himself backwards up and over it back into the ring. That's that was that's core strength, right? Oh yeah, this is these uh Johnny Gunn and Z-Man or Tom Zank, uh very athletic, very strong, use their uh strengths to their advantage. This was very much a speed versus power match. Yeah, they knew what they had and they knew how to use it. Yeah. They didn't try to go toe-to-toe with, obviously, Wrecking Crew had the obvious uh, strength advantage. As the match moves on, there is a, there is a series of Irish whips, and Z-Man gets sent into the neutral into the neutral corners, and then Fury goes up, goes up and Fury and hits a flying axe hand. Following that, a couple of po- series of power slams, and then the match ends with the Wrecking, wrecking Crew's double-team finisher, the, the Wrecking Ball. Yeah, so for those that uh, are not familiar with the, this maneuver, it was basically, if you remember when Ron Simmons or Farouk would be in WWF and he did the Dominator, which was kind of like a gut-wrench powerbomb, it was basically one of the members of the record crew would do that while the other one would come off with some sort of like sledgehammer blow off the top rope. Kind of like a little bit more power and momentum with the powerbomb. I liked it. like, And I get like, a lot of people may not have liked the Wrecking Crew. They weren't around very long. I think they were around for about a year or so, at least in this time frame. I liked them. I thought they did their job well. They were just two big, mean, massive dudes. And it's just, there was just, it's just sometimes you watch that one wrestler or that tag team that you just, something about them, you're just like, I like that. There's something about it I like. Yeah. The match on whole seemed pretty standard for this era. Yeah, it was good. And like they, the, the, Johnny Gunn and Z-Man did their flashy stuff. At one point, uh, one of the Wrecking Crew came off the top, and Tom Zink kicked him in the face. Like, he got some extension off a kick to the right, probably right in the chin. I think that was right when Fury hit the axe handle. They hit each other at that. Sure. And it was, they they did the rolls. They had the power versus the speed. But there was just, you ever watch a wrestler or a tag team that has that intangible, you're like, I don't know what it is about them, but I like them. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah, that's how it was with the Wrecking Crew. It's like, there's something about them. I can't put my finger on it, but I like those guys. Yeah, next segment is Larry Zabisco interviewing the World Tag Team Championship challengers, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin. Sure, there is there is one thing before we do talk about this that we we uh, glossed over, that we were talking about the main event later on in the evening, the Thunder, the Thunder Cage, that we had the four-on-three advantage, where and then we had a promo with backstage with... Uh, Harley Race, Barry Windham, Big Van Vader and Paul Orndorff, and the Barbarian. And they were talking about how they had the the advantage, but they're like, Harley Race looked at uh, Barbarian and said, hey, we know you're friends with Cactus Jack, you're out. Which I did, and then obviously the Barbarian's pissed, he just got booted out of the main event. He goes, he just straight picks, and Harley Race was not a small dude. Barbarian just straight up picks him up by his coat, lifts him up in the air before the other three... Uh, Beat him down. He gets pile drivered, and he just gets destroyed and left there on the ground. And even Jesse Ventura, who's one of the commentators with Jim Ross, 
was like, why? Why would you do that now? You had a four-on-three advantage. Why would you not mount? Even Jesse Ventura was like, I, why? Why would you make that a thing? Yeah, that just, that that made no sense to me. Like, I get why they did it, because this is like, hey, this is his uh, his partner, his buddy, but at the same time, hey, we need, we have this advantage, let's keep it. We'll beat his ass after the show. Yeah, that that would have made more sense. All right, so back to the back to the tag team championship challengers, Brian Pillman, and at this time, stunning Steve Austin, who was not very who was not a uh, he was not the Stone Cold style you, you people might remember from back in the, back in the day. Uh, the yeah. best way I could explain stunning this this stunning Steve Austin was kind of like in between the original stunning Steve Austin and Stone Cold with his style. Like if you look at the original stunning Steve Austin, the best person I could explain what his style was like. He was very Dolph Ziggler. Okay, and that tells me exactly what what his style was. Yeah, like he very much Stunning Steve Austin very much reminds me of Dolph Ziggler. But yeah, this was not the Stone Cold Steve Austin hell raising. I'm going to punch you in the mouth and stomp you in the face. Yeah, obviously he would go on to great success there, and that was another name that I knew despite my late start to wrestling. But the, basically, this this was right before, not too long after this, the uh, Hillman and Austin would become the Hollywood Blondes. So this was kind of like that weird purgatory. They not the Hollywood Blondes yet, but you can kind of see where they're starting to gel, and they're basically putting themselves over. Obviously, as you do that, this is for the you know they're going to be tag champs. And this was a very good promo. I was impressed by this one. Oh, both of them, both uh, Pillman and Austin, very well on the mic. After that promo, we have Tony Schiavone interviewing Sting about Vader's challenge for the Thundercage match. Now, Sting's here wearing bright colors as opposed to the black and white he's been known for in more recent times. Yeah, this was this is what they would call, this is what it was basically known as uh, Surfer Sting. You know, the, the bleach blonde hair, the bright colors. Very popular with the kids. I was a huge, I was a little stinger as a kid. Uh, not only did they challenge it for the Thunderdome, he uh, also got a challenge for what was known as the White Castle of Fear. Yeah, that'll be explained a little more as we move to main event after after Saturday night. Saturday night, yes. After that, we have a segment with Ron Simmons and Dustin Rhodes. I had to look up if this was Dusty or the former Goldust. It was actually the latter. I did not know that Dusty's real name was Virgil. Oh, yeah, this is... Well, basically, the whole idea was that, you know, they may be down a person, but there's basically more than enough in these three that we're still going to win tonight. All right. The next match is another tag match. This is th- this is the tag team championship match with the de- defending champions Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. Yes. Now, Steve starts out versus Ricky in this match going very aggressive very quickly. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. This was like this was this was my favorite match of it may not have not not only been my favorite match of the night, it was my favorite match of the entire our first episode here. Because you had, you know, Ricky Steamboat, one of the all time greats, Shane Douglas, who at the time was very young, he was very fast. And you had basically all four men were quite capable in their their abilities and it showed. They gelled very well together. All four men wind up in the wing pretty quick, and then Shane sends Pillman out with a drop kick, and Ricky sends Steve outside with a chop. After this, Steve offers a handshake, which Ricky slaps away, and quickly manhandles him, Ricky to the hostile corner and starts two-on-one-ing him with Brian. Yeah. Now, as this match is... Yeah, they, 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 everybody filled the roles in very well. 
As this match is going on, various of Ricky's teammates are mentioned. Jay Youngblood, Paul Jones, Dustin Rhodes. Oh yeah, he's he's very like he had much success. Tag champions every every almost everywhere he went. He uh very sound. Not only was he very sound as a technical or as a singles wrestler, he was very sound as a tag team. Tag team wrestler. Yes. All right. As the match progresses, we have some chain wrestling. Austin gets pulled to a to the hostile corner, so Steamboat and Douglas can do some tag attacks. A couple of rapid cover attempts. Austin bridges out of a jackknife cover to a vertical base. As I said, I love seeing that. All right. So further in, we see. We see Brian Pillman throw Ricky Steamboat out of the ring towards the hard cam. The announcers say this would have been a disqualification if the ref had seen it. Do you know why that was? Because I that that's new to me. The whole top rope thing. Yeah. Because there was a, when Bill Watts took over WCW, there was a lot of old school rules that he brought in that just didn't really fit the time frame. Because it's always a thing you can never you can always go forward, you can never go back when it comes to wrestling. So the idea was if somebody got thrown over the top rope then the person who threw would be disqualified. That was an illegal move. So, and if obviously if the the uh, ref didn't see it, it never happened. Right. All right, so match, match, is go, match continues. Austin attacks uh-huh. Steamboat on the outside. As Shane comes to Steamboat's aid. Pillman, su- there's a suplex from the apron back into the ring. That's impressive. All right, Steamboat does a sunset flip later into a pin attempt, but Austin distracts the referee so that he can't get in position. Basically, this is this is really good tag team wrestling. There's just, there's a lot I could talk about. Oh, this is classic tag team wrestling. Uh, unfortunately for this match, it eventually ends in a disqualification when when Austin gets the tag belts and attacks Shane with them. And I get why you know sometimes the disqualification doesn't work, but sometimes you need it. And I felt that I would have liked to have seen an actual finish. Right. So Douglas is busted open by that hit. And Pillman and Austin go crazy with the tag tiles, eventually walk out with them. Because yeah, they start whipping him with they start whipping him with it like severely. And Steamboat comes in and actually gets on top of his partner. So they decide to whip him too until uh, uh some of the good guys come out and uh break it up. Ooh. And obviously this is, we're continuing the feud for the tag titles. And the belt to belt time on this match is thirteen minutes and forty six seconds, the longest of longest of the episode so far. Yeah, and they, they got a lot in, in that thirteen minutes too. Yeah, I'll agree. That was another very dense match. Yeah. Where there was a lot of stuff in, but at the same time, it didn't feel like too much was done. Yeah, it was just just, just solid tag team wrestling is what I saw there. Mm-hmm. All right, next, we have another interview with Harley Race Invader, and Ron Simmons comes in, Harley Race attacks him. Yeah, because basically, because what had happened, a little backstory here, Ron Simmons last year, which would have been 92, won the, the title from Vader. Because Sting was supposed to wrestle him, he got attacked by Jake the Snake. They had a, a basically a, a drawing to see who would fight Vader for the title that night. Ron Simmons won the raffle, won the match, mind you, with a power slam on Big Van Vader, which is impressive. And Ron Simmons is credited as the first ever African American world champion in wrestling. So this was a big deal back then. And then that December, Big Van Vader wins, hits a shoulder breaker, pins him, and wins the title back. Uh, so this is basically, um, Ron Simmons is like, look, I'm coming for the title. I'm going to beat you. We're going to beat you tonight. And I'm coming for that title. I'm getting my title shot back. Harley Race did what he did. Go to the man. And basically Ron Simmons threw both of them around relatively easy. People forget that Ron Simmons was an accomplished football player. Uh, not only in the NFL, he was 
all-star at Florida State. He was actually the first ever football player at Florida State to get his number retired. Hmm, interesting little bit of trivia there. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a, I believe, defensive lineman. So he had the, he had the strength and the power to be able to pick up Vader like he did. I believe he even spine-busted Vader. Right. But obviously, the numbers game caught up on him. Mm-hmm. Went after that damaged shoulder. Vader hit another shoulder breaker. Bad news, Ron Simmons is out of the match. Now we went from a four-on-four to a four-on-three to a three-on-three. Now we're on a three-on-two. Yeah, right at the end here, Dusty Rhodes and Sting come down, and we cut the commercial. Coming back, the Thunder Cage is being lowered into place, and I see it does look like Hell in a Cell. Yeah, so uh, just to show you the difference between the the card, the original match was going to be Sting, Dustin Rhodes, Ron Simmons, and Van Hammer versus Barry Windham, Big Van Vader, The Barbarian, and uh, Rick Rude. Now we have Dustin Rhodes and Sting versus Barry Windham, Big Van Vader, and Paul Orndorff. And this is my thing with it. You know, this is one of those street fight, come dressed as you are type matches that I, I like these. You know, when done right, these are fun. But if you're supposed to be, this is a street fight, no rules cage match. Why are we having tag rules? Because at one point, if they decide just to break down and fight, what's the? there's nothing the ref can do. I never understood why we need to have this as a regular tag team match. That is a good question, and I don't know the answer to that either. Sting and Dustin Rhodes are obviously two of the top baby faces in the company at the time. And there's a lot of, lot of uh, combinations of people together. Uh, Sting and Big Van Vader are in the middle of their huge title f- feud. There was talk about how Sting was the only one that was able to consistently topple Vader. Because Vader was just absolutely just manhandling everybody. Uh, Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham had a thing. They were world tag champions for a while before they broke up and Barry Windham turned on him. So there's a lot of, what they like to say, combustible elements to this. Right. Anything could happen, and a lot of things did. Yes. But basically, the majority of it was just a regular three-on-two tag match. All right, so we eventually start with Wyndham and Rhodes. Alrighty, so Sting gets tagged in later. Wyndham doesn't see it. Sting does an overhead press into a body slam. As I said, that's an impressive thing. There's mention of the White Castle of Fear. The announcers are just as perplexed as we were. There's mention by the commentators, Sting and Rhodes have nothing to lose. Vader has his title eventually. And then there's the JR says they could lose their health. So that's, that's a valid point in a match like this. Sure. Um, and then, But yeah, it's going back and forth. But once uh, Vader gets tagged in, woo! Like, there's a reason people were... Van Vader scared me as a child. This was a man that could just basically throw people around willy-nilly. Very hard hitter. Very stiff guy. One of the moves that I was impressed with in this match, he had Sting up in the air, press landing, released him, and on the way down, he punched him right in the stomach with that big old fist of his. Yeah, that was, I actually cringed when I saw that because that looked that looked painful. Yeah, but yeah, we're going back and forth with this. Obviously, there was a point where you know the heels are working over the good bad guys, and it's not looking good. However, out of nowhere, here comes Cactus Jack, and people are wondering why he had why Cactus Jack is is coming to the ring. What his business is. Yeah, he's got a set of bolt cutters, which he uses to cut the cut the lock off the door and get into the cage as Rhodes is getting manhandled by Orndorff. Wyndham tries to intercept him and fails, and then Jack goes after Orndorff and Vader. 
Yeah, because he, he takes out Wyndham with the bolt cutters. It's now a three-on-three. Three. This is the full-on f- first face turn of Catcher Jack. And now it's a three-on-three, three, and they're going back and forth. This is the point where the match just starts breaking down. And as we get to the end, Orndorff is setting up Dustin Rhodes for his pile driver. Orton's, uh, Orndorff's finishing maneuver. Catcher Jack comes off the top, takes off his boot, comes off the top, hits Orndorff with it, and Rhodes is able to roll up Orndorff, and the good guys win, and everybody goes home happy. The, that match was that match was very chaotic for the eleven minutes and twenty three seconds that it lasted. Yeah, I it still there was like I said, you, you keep saying the word dense, and like a lot of these matches, to, at least for the Clash of the Champions, they got a lot in with the time they gave, but it didn't seem like everything was rushed and everybody just like boom, 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 boom. Like they were dense, but they they flowed well. Yes, dense but not overloaded. Sure. So and then after the match. There's a promo with Catcher Jack when he's basically talking to Harley Race and his people saying this is not over yet. We're, we we got beef. They're building to a match with Orndorff and Cactus Jack this Saturday. Sure. But overall, this show, we'll get to that here in a second. But overall for this show, would you think you, you weren't you really didn't get to watch a lot of WCW beforehand because obviously it was gone long before you would start watching. What did you think is your first taste of WCW? I think they knew. I think they knew what they were doing. They knew how to make. They knew how to wrestle. They knew how to. They knew how to cut promos. They they were they were solid. Yeah, I actually you know a lot of times, especially when we were growing up, you either had one or the other, as in you usually had WWF or WCW on TV. In Ohio, we had that weird thing where we would actually sometimes get both of them. Like every once in a while, you would get a WCW show in Ohio, and obviously, we'd get WWF. And then I also had TBS, so I was one of the the few that actually had both. I was able to watch both as a kid because I was able to find them both on syndication. So uh, match of the match of the show, match of the night, probably the tag championship match. I would agree with that myself. Okay, so we would go. We're going to go on to WCW Saturday Night, which was the flagship show for WCW at the time. We're looking at January sixteenth, nineteen ninety three. The show opens with JR and Larry Zbysko talking to Bill Watts about the number one contenders tournament for the U.S. title. Sure, because what had happened is that the, the main event is going to be Dustin Rhodes versus Ricky Steamboat in the finals for that number one contenders tournament. However, because of Ric Flair's injury, excuse me, not Ric Flair, Rick Rude, Rick Rude's injury, he was not able to defend the title for 30 days because that, that honestly used to be a thing. You had to defend your title every 30 days. So what they're going to do is they're going to strip... Rick Rude of the United States title. And now the number one contenders tournament is now a tournament for the title. So they're actually going to be fighting for the title tonight. There's also some mention of the storyline with Eric Watts says that he says that the reason for his arrest was false and that he gets a lot of flags just because of who he is, Bill's son. Yeah. And he says he, the uh, footage, they're going to have footage of the incident so we can figure out what really happened. All right. The opening match of the show is a six man tag team match. Wyndham, Pillman, and Austin versus Bad Armstrong and Scorpio. And there's mention of how close Pillman and Austin came to winning those tag championships. Very, They were very close. But like I said, we're continuing that feud for the tag titles. And basically, you have Barry Wyndham, who was a former world champion. So you have, you know, and basically, there's a lot of big names, at least on the, the card, in this match. You had world champions, tag champions. Brad Armstrong was light heavyweight champion. Like, there, there's a lot of uh, pedigree and credentials in this opening match, and it was good. It, it did what it did. 
Yeah, not sure I'd call this one dense. Little, little less so than the other ones I've said, but it was, it, it did what it needed to do. Actually, for a good, the good half of this, the good guys have taken over, going back and forth. The bad guys will take over for a little bit. Mainly the quote unquote face and power for this was Johnny B. Bad. It was it was very standard. There was nothing wrong with it. But it was very standard. Everybody got to do their things. What made them, what brought them to the dance, right? And as we get to the end, it breaks down as most of these tag matches do. Brad Armstrong has Barry Windham up ready for the side Russian leg sweep, which was Brad Armstrong's finisher at the time. Before he is taken out by Ryan Pillman, Barry Windham is able to land his Impaler DDT and uh, get a win for the bad guys. And that is a match time of 8 minutes, 24 seconds. Yeah, I, once again, I think it flowed well. Everybody got their stuff in. And then we cut right back to an interview with Barry Windham, who, like you said, has uh, a vested interest in the main event. And he goes, hmm, maybe I'll come and make a visit. You never know. Yeah, and he's saying that Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Team will both let him down and both cost him the tag titles at some point. Yep. By the way, Barry Windham is also in the Hall of Fame as a member of the Four Horsemen, because Barry Windham was a member of the Four Horsemen at one point. Alrighty. There's a flashback to Clash of the Champions with Vader's invitation for Sting to the White Castle of Fear. They replay that promo. And from there, we move into a, the next match, Vader versus Tim Dixon. Uh, yeah, this... Oh my God, Vader murdered a man. <laughs> this this looked like a murder. Yeah, three minutes and 24 seconds. And Vader just absolutely pillar to post, mop the floor, any uh, metaphor you want to use. This poor man. Woo. Yeah, I feel sorry for that guy. Yeah, Vader finished it with his his powerbomb that off the shoulder, it's actually known as the Thunderfire Powerbomb if it comes off the shoulder like that. Hmm, interesting little note there. Yep, you would see that. Uh, he would use it like that. Uh, Sid Vicious would do his version. Uh, Japanese legend, the great Sasuke, would do this version. So yeah, this this version was... A handful of people would use these. It's known as the Thunderfire Powerbomb. All right, after that, we have Teddy Long interviewing Ron Simmons, whose bit promo boils down to... Holding the title is addictive, and I'll do whatever it takes to get one back. Yeah, absolutely, because the uh, he was like, Teddy, you know what I can do, because Teddy Long used to be a manager. He managed Ron Simmons when he was in a tag team known as Doom. It was Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. They were former world tag champs. So he was like, Teddy, you know what I can do. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to win that world title back. And, you know, we'll see if Ron Simmons is actually able to get back that world title that he lost to Vader. All right. Moving on from that, we have Tony Chavani interviewing Eric Watts, the altercation, because some fans at this altercation at a gas station just happened to have a camera. Those cameras were not small in that time. No, we need to we need to dissect this uh, this promo or this video because we're going through and it is. I get you want to meet a wrestler, they run to him at the gas station, great, and I also get that you want to. Hey, let's get a picture, but I don't know why it's it's ironic, and I know I get. It's wrestling. Suspend your disbelief. But. So, Dad brings out the camcorder. And this girl, at the time, she looked maybe, what, about eight? Eight or nine, I'd say. Yeah, somewhere between seven, eight, nine in year range. What up, you, you meet a wrestler at the gas station. It happens. I ran into I ran, I ran ran into a wrestler at Dunkin' Donuts one time after a show. So, so they're just like, hey, you want to get a picture with him? Hey, do you mind if I bust out this big-ass camcorder just for no specific reason? <laughs> Instead of, like, you know, the old-school cameras. Cool. So, I, you know, they're getting a picture. And the part that I found weird... Well, okay, one of the things I found weird. He asked... The dad asked the girl if she can get... If she can kiss Eric Watts. 
And I'm like, might just be me. I was like, hey, can I get a hug? Cool, great. But it's like, hi, mister, can I kiss you? And I'm like, I found that weird. That's just me. Yeah, that's very weird. Hug, I get it. You know, when I hug a wrestler, I'm like eight years old. I have a favorite wrestler. But, and then, while this is going on, mind you, we're in public, mind you, this is a public gas station. Arn Anderson pulls up in his car. He goes, hey, you want to fight? So they start to fight. And once again, in a regular fight, wrestling moves really aren't a thing you want. You know, if it's supposed to be, I'm not going to powerbomb you or choke slam you in a, in, a, in a gas station fight. We're just fist fighting. We're getting in a fist fight. Right. But Eric Watts was able to lock in his, the STF, which was his, his submission finisher, the STF in the middle of the, on the, on the gas station ground outside by the pumps. On Arn Anderson, he's twer- he's tweaking back on him, you know, trying to do some damage, and then out of nowhere, like I'm talking about, within seconds, cops pull up. Like I'm talking seconds. They almost like they had to have been across the street and seen this because there's no way cops show up that quick. Yeah, and especially in a time like that when someone would have had to run to a payphone to call them. Yeah. So I mean, and I once again, I get it's '93. Blah, blah, blah. But there was just so many things about this that wasn't for me. I didn't, I didn't, there was too many plot holes for me to... Suspend your disbelief? Yeah. But basically the idea, the whole idea was, hey, this is video proof that I was attacked, I was defending myself. And so they reinstate Eric Watts, they end his suspension. Right. He brags about, once I lock in that STF, the only one to break it's the referee. And he says, I'm an easy man to find, come to the ring. Basically. Alrighty, the next match is the Wrecking Crew versus Keith Cole and Chris Sullivan. Can we talk about that shiny jacket, please? Sure. That Keith Cole jacket? Or is it Chris Sullivan? One of them. Gorgeous jacket. All of the gold sequins and flashy and sparkly. I love that. I would rock that now. Yeah, that jacket was absolutely gorgeous. Fabulous! I would wear that now, and you know I would. Indeed, I do know that. You know, as I was watching this, the... One thing that stood out to me, Cole kind of looks like Guile with a mullet. Yeah, from a, from a uh, mullet to a flat top. And so this is a pretty standard match again. Cole and Rage start. Cole, Cole tosses himself at Rage a few times, eventually knocks him down. The teams are going back and forth. Jerry eventually antagonizes Sullivan to the game to the ring and then takes Cole to hostile territory while, while the ref is getting Sullivan backed out. Then Rage is tagged in because some corner, pl- corner splashes, and eventually Sullivan goes manic and takes out both of them. But then Fury tags in again without Sullivan seeing, and they hit the wrecking ball. Five minutes, twenty-five seconds. This was a quick match, not super quick, but it was. It was for the wrecking crew. We're putting on the wrecking crew because we find out as not too long after this, they uh, they are going to be taking on the Rock and Roll Express at Super Brawl. So, obviously, we want to make the Wrecking Crew look as good as we can. But once again, I like the guy. I like those guys. Mm-hmm. They definitely knew what they were doing. Yeah. All right, next segment is Tony Schiavone interviewing Dustin Rhodes. He says, I've waited a long time for this, Ricky. You better be on top of your game because I'm going to be on top of mine. Yeah. they were. You know, like I said, they were both good friends in real life, but also on TV. They were good friends. And it's like, look, I know we're friends. You know, this is for the title. It's not just for a title shot. Now it's for the title. We're, we're friends. We're going to be friends after this, but just know once the bell rings, I'm going to win. We then cut to the Super Brawl 3 Control Center. Great Muda's going to defend the NWA title there. That 
I bet that's going to be a fun be a fun match. Yeah, oh yeah, like I said, I was a huge fan of the Great Muda, especially when you're when you're like seven, eight years old, and you see this guy spewing mist out of his mouth, all the face pain, how quick he was. Like I said, he was the first person I ever remember seeing do a moonsault. Oh wow! So this guy, this this guy actually mystified me as a child. After that, we have an interview with Ricky Steamboat, who says pretty much the same thing Dustin Dustin said. Show no mercy because I sure won't. And there was one thing about this that I really liked, as that Ricky Steamboat said, is that he he knew he was coming towards the end of his active wrestling career, and I think it was within the next year or two. Uh, but basically, he said, "Look, I'm I, I I'm older. I know that these uh, moments aren't going to come to me as as often as they used to. So I'm going to take advantage of this any chance I get." Right now, moving on from moving on from that interview, we have a thirty-eight second match between Max Payne and Rick Savage. Very quick submission to end that one. Yeah, Max Payne, which to me looked like he had a uh, the most basic creative wrestler before I do all the flashy stuff. Outfit, simple black hair. He also had you know hair all over the place. He came out playing guitar, came in and uh, German suplexed the guy, locked in the painkiller. That was the name of the his armbar. On bar. And I believe you said it was what, 38 seconds? Yes. 38 seconds. German suplex, arm bar, over. Moving on from that, we have Larry interviewing Vinny Vegas, who calls out Van Hammer, who has not responded. Yeah, and I, what I like is like Vinny Vegas is still doing a, hey, oh, you know, I'm walking here type thing. And he was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll have some of my boys come down and make a visit. Oh, and I'm like, I'm glad that they got like, Kevin, Kevin, I almost said Kevin Smith. Kevin Nash do his normal voice, you know, once the Vinny Vegas ran its course, because it was it was very even for a fake gangster gimmick. It was the the voice was just so cheesy. It's like if he was a French French uh, wrestler, he'd be like, "Oh, oh, oh I'm going to beat you up." Oh, 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 oh. That's how goofy it sounded. Oh yeah, that was. I kind of got me cringing. Yeah, that was just like, "Oh, oh, oh, oh I am French." I shall beat you thusly. Ho, 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 ho. That's how hokey it sounded. All right, moving on from that, we have we have Cactus Jack talking about Cactus Jack and how he got involved in the Thunder Cage match. And Jack cuts a promo of his own. Says, I don't want people to like me. I feed on their hatred. But yet, people start liking him because it's Cactus Jack. He, uh, yeah. Yeah, so he says, Vader, Orndorf, I'll feed on my own hatred for you. Next event is Marcus Alexander Bagwell versus Chris Benoit. Match starts off pre- re- fast motion, chain wrestling. Yeah, uh, uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, who we all know later on, much success as Buff Bagwell. Uh, he was very quick back then. He was he was the you know the the baby faced rookie. He had only been around a year year or so in WCW. Very quick, very agile. So this was a good this was a good uh, style change. Yeah, the yeah the the quicker. This also showed that Chris Benoit could go against the te- more technical wrestlers like Brad Armstrong, but he could also handle the quicker wrestlers like a like a Bagwell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the motion in this match is very fast. You, they're, they're they're moving very quickly, and that's you see you see Bagwell in control for a while. Benoit eventually does does his finisher and gets the pin. Sure, and you can also see that not only was uh, Benoit able to keep up with a different style. At such a high level, because he was already at somewhat of a high level at this point, anyways, in '93, because he had, he was also getting a lot of experience in Japan. It also showed that how underrated Bagwell was as a wrestler that he was able to keep up with somebody like a Benoit even this early in his career. 
Next segment is WCW Up Close with Pillman and Austin. They talk about how thrilled they are with their partnership and say the, the ultimate challenge for them would be two out of three falls for the titles. Sure, because and Pillman's explanation was anybody can win. Anything can happen with one fall. Anybody can win with one fall match. But two out of three falls really shows you what kind of wrestlers you are and how good you are in wrestling if you can win two out of three times. Right. The next match is is Paul Orndorff and Cactus Jack, and this turns into a slugfest very quickly. Oh, yeah, because uh, not only because we know what Cactus Jack can do, for those that don't know, Paul Orndorff, yet another Hall of Famer, was this was a dude that would just beat people. Like, there was, he was, he was part of that, he came out of that whole uh, camp of, you know, the tough guy wrestlers, because a lot of times back in the day, and I know of some promotions that used to do this, Professional wrestlers were supposed to be these big, strong guys that could just fight. And there was a time, a lot of promotions, I think Florida, there was a promotion in Florida, I believe it was the Grams, the Grams, their promotion out of Florida. If you were, let's say you got in a bar fight with a civilian and you lost, you would get fired. Really? Never heard of something like that. Yeah, because it's like, hey, you're larger than life. Why would I go watch somebody wrestle that I just saw get knocked out by a dude in a bar fight the night before? Put it like that, yeah, it makes sense. So Orndorff came from that era. So Orndorff came from that area where you had to be tough. So and he was. Right now, or, yeah, there's for a while there, or, he's not giving Jack a chance to get back into the ring. And they they fight outside for a while. Jack goes for a splash and flips over and out as Orndorff dodges. CJ hits the apron and Orndorff starts landing knees. Crowd's cheering for Jack and he's not thrilled. Yeah, no. Jack gets thrown into the referee by Orndorff late in the match, but no disqualification. That's unusual. It, it goes on back and forth. Mm-hmm. And in the and the eventual ad, the eventual end is a disqualification as Vader attacks with Harley Race on the outside. Sure. And then the funny thing about this is going through, he's getting double teamed, and people are shouting. They want Sting, 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 because they're expecting Sting to come out because of his feud with Vader. But Barbarian comes out, and it, you almost kind of feel like the crowd deflates a little bit when Barbarian comes out. But it made more sense for Barbarian to come out because that's supposed to be Catches Jack's buddy and tag partner. Of course, he's going to come out to help defend his partner as opposed to Sting. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they're continuing that whole quadrilogy of people. Alrighty, that match lasted for 9 minutes and 48 seconds, and we move right into Steamboat and Rhodes for the U.S. Heavyweight title. Yeah, like we mentioned earlier in the segment that this was supposed to be the number one contender for a shot against Rick Rude. Unfortunately, Rick Rude had an injury where he was unable to defend it, so they stripped him. So now the winner of this match is going to be the new United States champion. And by God, was this match good. Yeah, this was a this was ridiculously good. Steamboat and Dustin Rhodes both knew exactly what they were doing. They knew They knew what the other could do. They knew how to feed off each other. I could gush for hours about this match. And the thing about this is when I went to wrestling school, once again, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I was trained at House of Glory in New York City. Shout out to the House of Glory. Uh, they preached basics, 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 basics. And if you watch this match, because we used to have to do the basics, we did ba- the basics up hundreds of times. If you watch this match, that's all they did was the basics and the fundamentals. That's all they did in this match. But they are able to do... That stuff so well, they didn't need to do the flashy stuff. Right. Sometimes the basics are all you need. Yeah. And even better, they they knew like Steamboat's finisher was the crossbody from the top rope. So 
Dustin kept working on his ribs and his midsection. Dustin Rhodes' finisher was the bulldog. Steamboat was working on his arm. It was like it's the small psychological basic stuff that made this match so good because they're like, we, we've wrestled, we're friends, we know each other, so I know I'm going to work on your midsection because I know that's going to make your finisher less effective. I'm going to work on your arm because that's going to make your finisher less effective. And then they also just did fundamentals and basics this whole match. And it was so good. Like, honestly, I think this might honestly be my entire, my favorite match of the entire episode. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. The best match of, best match of this episode. Yeah, 100%. Um, so if we, we go to the finish. Barry Windham comes out like he says he does, like he was going to. Uh, Ricky Steamboat is, uh, fell out of the ring. Dustin Rhodes obviously stepping back, giving him time. The ref is talking. Neither one of them see Barry Windham come out. DDT. Ricky Steamboat onto the concrete. Like I said, DDT was Barry Windham's finisher. Barry Windham, oh, excuse me, Dustin Rhodes wins by countout. So Dustin Rhodes is now your new WCW United States champion. So, and then after this, they're interviewing Dustin Rhodes at the end of the episode, and they show him the footage, and he's not happy. He's like, look, you know, a lot of respect to, to Ricky. This is not how I wanted to end. He's going to go find Ricky, make this right, and they're going to, you know, hey, obviously, you know what? I'm, let me give you a shot. I had no idea this happened. Let's let's let, let's run this through again. Right. You're, they're playing playing into their friendship, both both in both in, in kayfabe and in real life. Absolutely. So, and that's how WCW Saturday Night ends for January sixteenth. The match was fifteen minutes and two seconds. There, fantastic. Like I said, once again, I can't gush over how great that match is. Fantastic match, and that actually also concludes our episode one of Dropkicks and Attractions. Uh, we do have a schedule set up, so I figure we go through at least the next few episodes. Episode two, which will be coming out, we're going to try to release these episodes weekly. So next week, we are going to do our first movie or pop culture related episode, which I figure, why not do a, you know, really, really combine wrestling and pop culture. We're going to be talking about the Hulk Hogan classic, Mr. Nanny. That's going to be a lot of fun. I had, I used to watch that movie a lot as a kid. Uh, The next wrestling episode, which will be in two weeks, will be the January 18th Monday Night Raw and the January 23rd. WCW Saturday Night, that is the go-home Raw before the Royal Rumble. And also, when we do have the pay-per-view shows, those will be their own dedicated episodes. And episode four, which will come after that, we will be talking about a movie, surprisingly, I have never seen. And I don't think you'd seen this before recording. Before recording, no, I had not. Which is a surprise, because I'm a massive Bill Murray fan, Harold Ramis fan. We're going to be talking about the Bill Murray classic Groundhog Day. Looking forward to it. So, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Bill Murray. So, uh, I am Xander Vickish. You can find me on Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, Hover, Instagram, basically all the social medias. You can find me at Xander Invictus. You can find the podcast at on Twitter at capital D and capital A podcast one. And again, I am Big Bok. You can find me as at Big Bok on most socials. So once again, thank you everybody for the first of hopefully many, many episodes of the DNA Dropkicks and Attractions podcast. We'll see you next week. See you next week.